0: Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Sean Nelson, founder of Lovesack, a beanbag-like sack filled with a proprietary blend of recycled foam remnants called Durofoam. Listen as we talk about Sean's upbringing, education, and overall inspiration towards creating Lovesack as it is today. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Sean Nelson, the founder of Lovesack. Sean, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So I want to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah um, on a piece of land that my parents inherited from their Uh, grandparents and great grandparents who were the pioneers the Mormon pioneers of the area it was it was essentially my great great grandfather's farm that uh, all of then the extended cousins and aunts and uncles and second cousins um, sort of had a piece of and so my family was massive Mm. Um, not polygamous or, uh, yeah. you know, anything like that in Utah, but, um, just a big extended, uh, block and, uh, surrounding blocks of cousins and aunts and uncles is a lot of fun. And, um, uh, my dad built our house, uh, about the time I was born in 1976. And I grew up in that same house and in fact made the first love sack
0: mm. in the
1: basement of that house when I was 18 years old.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So prior to Love Sack, did you have an entrepreneurship mindset growing up, say, as a kid, lemonade stands or any other products?
1: Yeah, I did. You know, we did all those sorts of things, lemonade stands, uh, especially, you know, we had a bunch of fruit trees on our property and surroundings. So we would climb those trees and pull down all the cherries and fill entire coolers full of, you know, cherries and and apricots. And then sell those to like the catering kitchens in the area and stuff like that. And, and you know, in some cases bring home a couple hundred dollars or so, which wow. for a kid in the early 80s was a lot of money. For sure. And um, a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. So I saw you went to the University of Utah in 1995, and this is around the development of Love Sack. But outside of Love Sack, what did you study there?
1: So I started as a music major, I had been a pianist, you know, taking piano my whole life and in high school began playing somewhat professionally, like at weddings and private parties and stuff and started to sing and play and thought I was gonna, uh, I just loved music and playing in bands and that sort of thing. And then I, I took two years off to be a missionary for my church. I was a, a Mormon missionary in Taiwan. Okay. I spoke Mandarin Chinese. I became fluent in Chinese this is when I was 19, uh, 18 and 19 or 19 and 20 years old. And I had made that first love sack when I was 18 in college and put it away to go on the mission. And when I came back home uh, and began, you know, going to college again is when My friends were going to the drive-in movies, and I remembered, oh, I have this thing (laughs) in the garage wrapped up in plastic, and I pulled it out and started using it, and that's when everybody saw it and wanted me to make them one, and, and that's when Love Sack became a business.
0: That's awesome. So if you don't mind backtrack from there, what made you conceptualize the idea of the Love Sack, and what inspired you to move that direction?
1: Yeah. So when I was 18, I was just graduated from high school waiting for that first semester of college before my mission, bored out of my mind, watching The prices Right in wearing basketball shorts. I'm sitting on my parents' couch on a Saturday morning and it just popped in my head. Like I, I envisioned this, like imagine a beanbag from me to the TV, like this whole floor in front of me, <laughs> like that would be so crazy. Yeah. And and I'm just an impulsive person. And so I got off the couch, got in my car, drove down to Joanne's Fabrics, looked for some uh, vinyl, because that's what you make a bean bag out of, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on sale. Um, bought a couple scraps. It was 14 yards of fabric. Drew two giant figure eights, kind of like a baseball, mm-hmm. and tried to sew them together. And my girlfriend's mom helped me finish it, put a zipper in it. And then I had to stuff it and i you know couldn't find enough of those beanbag beads so i looked around the house to find anything squishy i could put in it and i found my parents camping mattresses you know like a piece of yellow foam yeah rolled up with a bungee cord around we had seven or eight of those i chopped them up on a paper cutter <laughs> um like in little squares and it took me three weeks to stuff this thing with packing peanuts and but those mattresses made it squishy and when people jumped on it you know it was like a giant pillow instead of mm-hmm. a beanbag and it was really weird yeah and it made people react you know to it and and they always wanted one and then as i said i i served a mission for two years came back home speaking fluent chinese um had a great time as a missionary but got back in school this time as a as an engineering major believe it or not mm-hmm. i had changed my mind and decided to do something um uh, I don't know, more solid than music when I came home. And I did one semester of engineering while I was deciding whether to start a little company making these giant bean bags because everyone kept bugging me to make them one. <laughs> and I needed a name that was like hippie bean bag 1970s love, peace, hate, war, bag, love bag, love sack. Oh, that's cool. Drove down to Utah State Tax C- Commission, paid $25 to register the name Love Sack as a business. And I was now selling them to friends and family on the block and people who had, had you know, bugged me. That's amazing.
0: Saving. So how much did that first prototype, that first love sack weigh? Like, were you able to carry that by yourself or what?
1: Yeah, that first love sack is about the size of our big one today. So okay. I mean, it was like eight feet across when it was smashed flat, like a pancake in the back of a truck, because we would take it to the drive-in movies. It probably weighed i don't know ninety pounds a hundred pounds um, it was heavy, and uh it was a, I mean we dragged it everywhere we took it, it had holes in it from the campfire, you know ashes, and like it was yeah, it was pretty beat up by the time I started making them professionally <laughs> and um, and it, it was just my side hustle through college and then you know i I started in, engin- in music and then engineering and then and then I got out of that, and the fastest way for me to graduate was just to do a major in Chinese, uh, and a a double major in Asian studies. And, you know, also emphasizing business. So Mm -hmm. I was taking a bunch of business classes and Chinese classes, and I was able to graduate by 2001.
0: Gotcha. So when you started to begin to sell the love sacks from the primary start, how long would one take to finish from start to finish?
1: that first one took me about three weeks the next one i made for my the first one i made to sell probably took me another about a week or two i mean i i, I again kind of sewed it up myself with a little help um i found a lady in the neighborhood who was a seamstress who started who started taking over the sewing for me but i i was still cutting i was basically a, a yellow paged um count a sofa makers and i found this factory in salt lake pretty big factory that, that threw off a bunch of scrap foam because when they make couches, they have tons of little pieces that they can't use and it's it goes to waste. Hmm. And so they, they, they would sell me giant sleeves, like plastic bags full of this scrap foam. And um, I was just kind of like doing them a favor to take it off their hands. And I was taking it home and cutting it up on that paper cutter. And it would take me like a week and it was terrible. Okay. And I only did that maybe two or three times before I was down there picking up some foam in my old, you know, 1976 Bronco. (laughs) And uh, they, and I said, do you have any way to shred this stuff up? And the factory guys are like, Oh yeah, we have this foam shredder back here that we haven't used in like 20 years. So I had to dust the thing off and, and, and rebuild the electric motors, kind of like a wood chipper. If you've ever used a wood chipper that you feed into, but now I could feed in, you know, these, I don't know, scraps of foam and I could stuff a sack. I could shred enough for a sack in like one hour and wow. that changed the game for me because all of a sudden now I could make, you know, I don't know, half a dozen sacks a week and deliver them in, in this old van that I bought from my parents. And uh, it became a business a side hustle all the way through college. And, you know, I was going to school in the mornings, in the afternoons, I'd go down to the factory and st- and stuff, some love sacks, maybe deliver one, having, Picked up, you know, some sewn sacks that I had cut out myself on the floor and dropped off at my neighbor's house a few days before, and this was sort of like my circuit. And then in the evenings after that, when the factory closed and they'd kick me out, because I was just sort of working in the back of that furniture factory, Mm -hmm. um, I'd go wait tables, and I was a waiter, and that's how I was actually paying, you know for school and my gas money and okay because love sack never made a dime i mean it was yeah. every time i made any money selling a love sack i had to buy more fabric and buy more foam and fix the shredder or fix the van or register for another trade show because we were we would put up a little 10 by 10 booths and sell them at boat shows home shows car shows that sort of thing
0: okay so at this time how were you advertising love sack social media wasn't really a
1: thing at this time so yeah how did you do that Now, this is late 90s, um, early 2000s, no social media. It was, like I said, boat shows, home shows, car shows, beer fest, Oktoberfest, little 10 by 10 booth, (laughs) some Bob Marley playing on a, a, you know, radio and like um, uh, word of mouth, friends and family that, you know, everyone who bought one, of course, it becomes a conversation piece. And I think that was my first lesson is, If you, if you can just come up with a product that's actually remarkable, you know, I read this book early on by Seth Godin called the purple cow and love sack, like an eight foot beanbag is a purple cow. Like if you drive past a cow painted purple alongside the road, you would notice it and you'd Mm -hmm. probably say something about it. And I've always believed in that phrase, be remarkable, you know? So if you have a remarkable product, something that would cause someone to, say something about it, um, then that's a huge, that's a, you know, that's a huge winning factor, right? At the outset.
0: So you're at these shows and say a customer comes up and wants to buy a sack at this time, what did the process look like from purchase to giving them the actual sack? Did they, did you ship it to them or how did that look?
1: Yeah, they, they would typically at that time, you know, make me some kind of deposit, like they'd write me a $50 check or, or leave me, you know, 50 bucks in cash or something like that. I'd take their name and number and address and, you know, and, uh, and, and we'd take their order manually, just write it down on a piece of paper. Um, I remember, in fact, we had, I think I still have copies of a few of them, these order masters. They're these giant, just big pieces of paper with, with a list of all of like the you know the customer's name would go across their their address their you know their the the size they want the color they want hmm. all that stuff and i would and we would just work off of this giant order form and and in fact because it was a side hustle i had some friends in college who sort of joined the company just to sort of help out and see where it could go and and so any one of us might come over during the week uh, walk into my parents' basement where I was living mm-hmm. in, in, in what used to be my mother's uh, dance studio. That's how I had the space to roll out the fabric and cut it out. Okay, it's this big empty room. And any one of us might kind of put a check mark by that person's name under the cut column and we might cut out their love sack and, and then drop it off at Marty's house who would sew them up and we'd pick them up a week later. And we just sort of did this, uh, in our spare time, and mm-hmm. it would take maybe a couple weeks to, you know, work through that little process to till it got down to the factory and got stuffed, and then delivered in the in our old 1978 Dodge
0: van. That's amazing. If you don't mind, what did a love sack run for at that time when you guys started out?
1: Um, yeah, love sack. I think we were selling them for like you know two or three hundred dollars, depending on the size. Okay. And, you know, they didn't have removable covers and we did. they didn't come shrunken down. We'd just roll them out of the back of the van and try not to tear them mm-hmm. as we loaded in through their front door usually or whatever. And they'd pay me the balance and drive away and make another one.
0: <laughs> awesome. So you guys landed a spot with a giant retailer called the Limited Two. And this was for 12,000 Love Sacks. I was wondering, how did they hear about Love Sacks?
1: Yeah. So as, as I was wrapping up college um, and we had been doing what I just described the whole way through in the afternoon, um, you know, like I said, LoveSec never made any money. It was kind of a pain in the butt. It was like, it was fun to have a business through college, but it was time to go get a real job. And I, and I had, you know, my degrees um, ready to graduate. I spoke fluent Mandarin Chinese. I had a job waiting for me in China actually. And I was ready to just shut the whole thing down and move on with my life. And, and my friends were like, no, you can't close love sack. I love my love sack. You're crazy. So I said, okay, we'll give it one last shot. And we had sold like 50 love sacks to Red Bull energy drink. Mm. Um, and, and goll, it was like a lot nicer to sell 50 at a time, even though it took us like a year to make them. Yeah. Um, if only we could get orders like big orders like that. So, so we had this big idea to, the guy who printed our brochures told us about this big trade show in Chicago where he goes every year to look for ideas. And it was basically for companies looking to do promotional products. Like we could put your logo on this giant, not beanbag called LoveSack, sack and um, try to get orders like Red Bull. And, and, and we went there and, and kind of credit carded our way there. And it was like $10,000 to enter the show. And we had to have like these really nice brochures and like we, I don't know, bought some shirts and embroidered our logo on them to look official and stood there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and lots of people jumped on these love sacks in our little 10 by 10 booth. Um, Mm -hmm. but nobody bought anything. And so I came home kind of dejected, but at the same time vindicated feeling like, okay, I at least tried. Yeah. And I was actually down at the factory stuffing a love sack when my phone rang and I I pulled it out of my pocket and look and it's an out of state number from Ohio and I turn off the foam shredder and I brush the foam out of my hair and I answered it, you know, <laughs> love sack corporation. And um, turns out it's the limited two. So, so this is like today you'd notice justice. It's like a little girl's apparel store. And they said, Hey, we saw you at this trade show. Uh, we love your product. We want you to make 12,000 little ones for Christmas for us and mm. shrink them down. Like you said, you can do and put them in there in these boxes and we'll sell them you know, during the holiday season, it's a, it's a, basically a quarter million dollar order. Wow. And, you know, at 21 years old, having only ever sold 50 at one shot, it 12,000 just blew my mind. And they, and they fed up to me this piece of fabric with little um, blue fuzzy fabric, little silver specks in it. And they said, it needs to be out of this fabric and it needs to be done by this date. And they gave me like five months to do it in. And um, I said, no problem. We're the best in the world. They had no idea that it was me and this wood chipper and like college buddies. And so I got on a plane and I flew to North Carolina to find that fabric. And um, I, you know, the biggest fabric show in the country is happening. And sure enough, I found it. And, and, but it was like twice as expensive as I needed it to be to do their deal. And I'm about to give up again thinking like, what am I even doing here? Like, like I had to credit card my way here. I'm still a waiter. I have, I don't know how I'm going to buy 30,000 yards of fabric, even if I could. Yeah. But I'm about to give up. And this guy, this fabric merchant has all these like sample boxes behind him with Chinese writing on the, bo- on the cardboard boxes. And I can read it. And it's mm-hmm. the address of the fabric mill that makes this fabric. Wow. And I'm like, crap, like I can't stop now. So I credit card my way to Shanghai, China to that address, 32nd floor office buildings of the sales office of this fabric mill. And I walk in and I don't speak Chinese at first. I just say in English, you know, I'm looking for this fabric and they say, yeah, we make it. I said, I need it for, you know, this price. They said, well, it's double that. But then they start talking amongst themselves in Chinese about how much it costs to actually manufacture this stuff. And I'm just listening because I can understand everything they're saying. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, like I just negotiate for three days. I knew that they could hit my price if they really wanted to. And so they came down and down and down. And finally they gave up and said, okay, we'll do the deal. We'll cut them and sew them and ship them to you. You know, you're going to have to stuff them in the United States. I said, great, no problem they said, we just need a $65,000 deposit to get started. Mm. And I was, you know, the (laughs) waiter in me was like, okay. So I called up the limited corporation from China. I said, Hey, I'm here at my factory. I've got your order ready to go. I just need, $65,000 $65,000 to get started on your order. And they said, well, you know, we're the limited. We don't get deposits. I said, well, we're Love Sack. I've never done a deal without a deposit. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Anyway, they finally wire me $65,000 to my University of Utah credit union account for Love Sack. Wow. I wire it to China. They're making, they're making the sacks. I had to go back home and find a way to stuff 12,000 little Love Sacks over the next 90 days.
0: Man. So how did you keep up with production was it just you
1: and your friends still
0: at this time then
1: um yeah so well so so basically i flew back home and and i drove out to farm country to maybe buy two or three of these converted grain grinders that Mm. we had been using and but it would have been terrible and they were slow and noisy and i said do you have anything bigger and this farmer's like oh yeah and he shows me this thing called a hay buster which is like a it's a it's it's a grinder that's pulled around by a tractor on a farm to grind up those two pound rolls of hay (laughs) and and we threw some foam in it and jammed it but we made some adjustments anyway we figured out how to make it work so i applied to the u.s government for an agricultural loan for farm equipment to purchase an old 1970s hay buster and a Mm. tractor to power it and i brought this tractor and hay buster to downtown salt lake city um next door to that old to that factory that i had been working at for a long time they leased me a space and i put i put this hay buster up inside and i built a platform for the tractor to sit on at the, at the loading dock because mm-hmm. the tractor has to stay outside because it's blowing smoke in the air because the tractor it basically runs off of the driveline of the tractor okay and um now i have a tractor powered factory that can shred tons of foam and I just needed a bunch of temp laborers to help me do it. And so in, in uh, September of 2001, after the container load of, of folded empty little love sacks arrived from China, um, we got to work filling them. And I think we had to do like hundred a day to stay on pace. And the first day we did like 30. Wow. And, and so we ended up having to run double shifts. And I was, I was, you know, at five in the morning, I was filling up six cans of diesel fuel Standing on the front tire of that tractor to fill it up with fuel to power us for the day. Man. Uh, by six in the morning, we were shredding foam and unjamming the tractor every now and then. And then, you know, th- those workers would go home in the afternoon, their cousins would come in, we'd work until midnight. <laughs> um, and it was just me and, and a couple of my college buddies, now graduated, working shoulder to shoulder with 20, 30 temp laborers trying to just get this order done and we, we did it. Um, but, but we barely broke even, um, I finished this order $24,000 or sorry, at 24 years old, $55,000 in credit card debt. Mm. Um, I owned a tractor and a hay buster. I had a bunch of people who wanted to keep working, but the problem is I hadn't been out selling because I had just been trying to complete this order come, you know, come what may. Mm -hmm. And, uh so i scrambled and i went to all the furniture stores in the area and they laughed at me and told me nobody wants to buy an eight foot bean bag let alone with this goofy name on it um <laughs> we went to the malls maybe to open our own store they laughed at us and told us they've got pottery barn and you know abercrombie and fish like what what, what do you want to yeah what kind of store are you trying to open so one of the malls that rejected us called me back two weeks later and said look We're a brand new mall, smack downtown, Salt Lake City. We'll let you in for the Winter Olympics and Christmas, Christmas and the Winter Olympics. And then, you know, in the springtime, we'll get someone real to take your spot. And I said, great, we'll take it. And we maxed out my cousin's credit cards and we did the carpet and the paint and the neon sign and tried to look official. And we opened the first Love Sex store on November 17th of 2001, just hoping people wouldn't laugh at us. And people came in and they heard the music bumping and they saw, you know, a funny movie on the big screen TV and they flopped down in a giant love sack to watch it. That's
0: amazing. And before
1: long they wanted to buy them and we were, we crushed it. I mean, we did tremendous sales in our first six weeks in business. We sold everything we could make down the street at our little factory and people were trying to franchise the business out of the gate and we were just off and running
0: that's amazing so going back to the limited to what do you think this opportunity meant for both your path and the future of LoveSack? because this is when you were on the fence yourself from continuing yeah. love sack or not so what did this really mean for your future with LoveSack?
1: you know i tried to quit LoveSack numerous times leading up to t- finally finally taking that order yeah um during the order i wanted to die it was so hard to complete it and financially physically nearly broke me mm. uh did break me honestly but yeah we we muscled through and then after i mean i really thought that we couldn't get any furniture stores to take us seriously and so you know we were always living on the edge of just financial ruin all the time mm-hmm. and when, you know, you're only 24 years old and you have all this credit card debt, you feel like there's just no way out. And so in some ways, that economic pressure is what kept me going. Like I, I had no safety net. Yeah. I I would be financially ruined. I would owe a lot of money to all these people. I'd be embarrassed. You know, so like that honestly kept me going through the hardest, hardest times. You just had to find a way to survive. For sure. And. And so that order, of course, really set us up to do the next thing. but And then, you know, even after we opened the first store, it was great. And then the second store sucked. But the third store was great. And the fourth store sucked. And it was, you know, we were just constantly on the verge of barely making it for a lot of years.
0: Yeah. So going to 2006, you launched the Channel. So what made you decide to go from the sacks that you were selling at this one point to full full-on couches.
1: Well, in that very first location, we had a couch in the corner just to be sp- sort of part of like the store decor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd have the couch in the corner, then some sacks in front of it, and then the big screen TV, and people would come in and flop down. And people often, like every day, every hour of every day would, would you know, they'd, they'd be maybe buying a love sack or looking around. They'd say, well, how much is that couch? I really <laughs> like that couch. And, and like, we couldn't sell the couch, it was too hard to deal with You know, you could, one, lots of people sold couches Two, Like they're, they're a pain to move. They're a pain to deliver, you know, mm-hmm. they're like, then they want the matching armchair or ottoman. Like, how do we get that? Yeah. But it got us thinking. Cause it, we were asked so often about it. Like, how could we make a couch that shrinks down? Like we shrink down a love sack and we started tearing apart couches in our garages and and basically we invented sectionals as you know them mm-hmm. in 2006 um, for that reason little did we know that it would set us up to sell couches online which was just emerging as a thing really mm-hmm. um it would set us up even today in 2020 to be we're the we are the only place you can buy a high-end sectional online and have it delivered FedEx. Wow. Period. Wayfair doesn't do it. Amazon doesn't do it. Restoration, Pottery Barn, Crate and Barrel, IKEA—they—they they all have sectionals that mm-hmm. are like a corner piece, middle piece, ottoman that will probably slide apart if you move too quickly. Yeah. To sit down. Um. And they're and they come in very very big boxes if they ship at all like that. Um. Where ours come. If you're familiar with sectionals, you know they're much more compact and they're hard to describe you know on a podcast but essentially the, the cushions and back pillows fit up inside the frames and the whole thing comes in very small boxes that can be fedexed and and so we didn't realize how big of an idea that was at the time but we have all these patents on it and it really was pretty unique and and not only that but the covers can now come off because each piece is separate so now it's machine washable and changeable change the fashion change the style change the fabric now it can be with you the rest of your life because as your life changes, so can your furniture. And that led us to today where we have this entire design ethos centered around the idea of designed for life, Mm. where a product could be with you the rest of your life because it was built to last a lifetime, but designed to evolve as your life changes. And that's an easy thing to just spew out there. But if you think about that for a second, what else do you own in your whole life that was built to last a lifetime and can evolve with you as your life changes for sure yeah nothing and and so like we we've we now touched on something way back in 2006 that we didn't even know was going to lead us to a whole philosophy that will probably make us i hope the most successful furniture company ever someday um over the next few years you're going to see it unfold because we'll we'll invent other things that will be designed for life and People will, I think, love us for it because no one else is doing that.
0: For sure. So, looking at love Sack today, what would you say is the main demographic for both the sacks and the sectional?
1: Well, for sure, our number one buyer is 35 to 39 years old, starting a family, having children, buying home. You know, maybe they're maybe their second time buying a home, and and you know they're making good money at that point in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, sacks and sectionals are expensive yeah and they're expensive because they are the best they genuinely can like, in fact you know it's crazy there are sacks i sold in college that are still kicking just fine like we've always made things bulletproof you know mm-hmm. really well we just believed in that and um you know it it evolved it's evolved over time and we've gotten even better at at manufacturing and designing but um you know it's uh and that and that makes us i think what's it, what's weird is like sacks begin to resonate with kids when they're like 10 years old you know they see yeah. like these youtubers playing games and then these are thousand dollar beanbags bags. And we, we want them to want them. And frankly, maybe by the time we're 16, their parents get them one for the basement or maybe they never got it. Cause their parents would never buy them one. Yeah. And now they're 22 years old and dang it. They've got their first job and they're making money and they're buying a love sack finally. <laughs> and, and, and what's cool is like we can resonate with the youth in a different way than like pottery Barn or crate and barrel can Yeah. Uh, because of the love sack. And then of course, the sectionals have all of the same earmarkings, but are much more serious, a much more serious investment, um, but are a really cool product that, you know, so, so our, our target demographic ranges from teenagers to frankly, empty nesters who see our ads online and they're downsizing and getting out of their giant home and, and they're getting new furniture as well. And Hey, this couch on TV looks pretty clever. And it is clever. And so we have a really, really broad appeal in terms of buying demographics, but our sweet spot is that family formation time.
0: Gotcha, for sure. So going into advertisement today compared to when you first started, does LoveSack implement any social media or, say, influencer marketing within the Sacks?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, LoveSack now has has a multi multi million dollar ad budget and we're yeah. spending money on TV over the top. We're spending money, of course, huge amounts on digital advertising of every kind. Um, you know, the digital playbook continues to expand every day. Mm-hmm. There's new platforms, there's new methods, there's, there's new mediums. Um, influencers for us are huge because most of these, most influencers, whether they're mommy bloggers, wanting sectionals, or whether they're YouTube gamers on Twitch Mm -hmm. wanting a big one in fur, they want our product. And so we mostly, because we have a purple cow of a product, as I said earlier, we can just just trade for a lot of this exposure and get really a lot of bang for our buck. And we don't, we don't pay for a lot of, we we pay for very little Mm -hmm. influencer marketing. We mostly just trade product.
0: Gotcha. So I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along your way, what would that be?
1: Man, I have decades of advice, but, um, you know, a few of the Shaunisms that I live by that emerged from the story I just told you, I would say number one, um, just do something. I say, get off the couch is kind of my mantra. Had, Had I not had I just had the idea to make a giant beanbag that would be my whole living room floor size. <laughs> that's one thing, but I got off the couch right then that day that moment, drove down to the fabric store, bought some fabric and started cutting it out. Mm. And and there's no way I could have known. In fact, as I said, it took years before it became a business. It then took decades before it became what it is today. yeah. And I could have never known that had I just, but I had to first get off the couch. Number two, I'd say embrace economic pressure. It was scary to have those credit card bills come due and to owe all these people money. But it, it made me finish. It made me keep going. For sure. I had no choice. And, you know, it's really easy for people to, you know, scare you out of your dreams ideas, but sometimes you need that kind of pressure to keep you going because it's too easy to quit otherwise.
0: For sure. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Lovesack at lovesack.com.
1: Thanks. Great to be with you.
0: Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.